Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, there is virtually an infinite number of places you can go to get information in the internet age. I mean, how many millions of YouTube channels are there, Instagram uh, accounts? I mean, to say nothing of the rest of the internet, where do you go to find good commentary on events related to Christianity, related to the culture, related to the Bible. Well, I've discovered a place that I think is a great place to go to learn about cultural issues almost real time. And the man who runs it actually grew up at least, he was born in Azerbaijan and then came to America as a kid and he has really rocketed uh, to semi-stardom, I might say, not only in the hip-hop world, but also in the YouTube world, doing a lot in commentary on biblical issues, cultural issues, things that affect us every day in the news. His name is Ruslan, and it's great to have him on the program. He invited me on his program a few weeks ago when I was out in San Diego, and now he has returned the favor when I asked him to be on our show today. So here he is, all the way originally from Azerbaijan, ladies and gentlemen. It's wow. now, what an introduction. Thank you so hey, much. Hey, you, you have know, a great radio voice, by the way. I want you to know that. That was Yeah, that was not, a, not a face for TV. But <laughs> Ruslan, I looked, I looked up, I did a little research, and your name apparently means lion. Did you huge, know that? Great, huge great lion, yes, yes. Huge great lion. Well, you've you've kind of like at least taken over uh the the internet in terms of YouTube for Christian commentary for a lot of people. In fact, uh, before I knew about you, it was our events coordinator, Miss Heath Mackey. She's been watching you for years. And oh, when wow. when I was going to be on your show, she said, oh, you're going to be on Rue's Launch Show? I said, yeah, yeah. She was, she's been a big fan for a long time. Wow. Let's start at the beginning. Born in... Azerbaijan, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are not good at geography, if, you, if you're in Azerbaijan, you're probably on the Caspian Sea. If you go south, you're in Iran. If you go north, you're in uh, Russia. If you go west, you're heading toward Turkey. Has about maybe 11 million people there. You were born and lived in the capital. It's called Baku. Did I, yeah, did Baku. I pronounce that right? That's right. Yeah, Baku. Yeah. Yeah, so I came from Azerbaijan were ethnically Armenian. My mm -hmm. dad is Armenian. My mother is uh, Ukrainian or Russian, but she was adopted by an Armenian family. And so we're culturally Armenian growing up in Azerbaijan, which used to be a part of the former Soviet Union that made kind of a big mess of that region in terms of how they were navigating or not navigating that. And there's been tension amongst obviously the Turks and the Armenians for hundreds of years, 
Many people may be familiar with the Armenian Genocide of 1915, um, and those tensions continued to follow Armenians that were living in Azerbaijan, and uh, tensions started brewing in the late 80s because there was reports of uh, Azerbaijanians not being treated well in Armenia, and that made it back to Azerbaijan, and then Azerbaijanians wanted all the Armenians out of Baku. And so what led to this was the pogroms of Baku in the late 80s, and my father was working in Moscow, so a lot of the men kind of already left the area. And because me and my mother were more fair-skinned, we kind of stayed behind to handle a lot of the affairs and to handle a lot of the things. So the, the interesting thing about Armenians is we're culturally, ethic, ethnically, one of the oldest Christian nations. Um, so we identify as cult, cultural Christians, if you will, part of the Armenian Orthodox Church. But I didn't grow up with any faith in my childhood. I don't ever remember going to church when we were back in Baku. I don't remember really any mention of the Bible. Like I didn't know what the Bible was. I, I don't even think I really heard about Jesus back in Baku. And uh, But as we came to America, after we came as refugees, the Armenian Orthodox Church became kind of the cultural hub for all these refugees. We just had an influx, I'm talking of, probably close to five, 600 refugees that came to San Diego from Baku. And there was this internet community of everyone here. And uh, it was it was hard because a lot of the folks came up under communism. So there's that mentality. Then you have the practical traumatic events of some of the stuff they went through, some of the stuff my dad went through, my grandfather went through. And it, it just, it was just a really weird time. And then you come to America and you're like, I've made it. Like we're here. This is incredible, right? Because even if you grew up in the Soviet Union, like you still uh, idolized uh, America to a certain degree, like you still dreamed about America. And so it was this really weird hodgepodge of experiences for me coming to America as a kid. Now, isn't Azerbaijan mostly Muslim? Yes, yes. Uh, primarily Muslim. I mean, all Muslim. Uh, Armenians aren't supposed to go back to the capital. They just expelled 120,000 Armenians from the uh, eastern part of Azerbaijan, which is disputed amongst, um, you know, eastern Azerbaijan used to be western Armenia. Um, mm -hmm. And so they just expelled um, a, a huge amount uh, that just left and came to Armenia uh, because of the th this very conflict that, that goes back is why I came out here and it's still been going on literally as recently as four or five months ago where there was all these people that got displaced, these Armenians that got displaced from Azerbaijan and because of the constant back and forth in this region. And they had a war in 2020 over the same things, Armenians and these historic Azerbaijanis. And, and, and there's churches there, Frank, that go back thousands of years mm, in Eastern mm. Azerbaijan. So in uh, they're con converting them to mosque. They're doing all kinds of weird stuff in this, in this, region and so yeah it's it's a really messy situation very few people are talking about it unfortunately now why did you or why did your parents decide to leave what was i mean the soviet union fell in 1991 uh we was left that a, a factor? few months we left a yeah. few months right before the soviet union fell which was the timing of that was crazy so we we left practically because there was fear of violence on us right all okay. the men had pretty much left by that point and again we were there kind of handling the last affairs and we applied for refugee status in uh, Israel, in Australia, and in America. And America was the last place we applied and the first place to accept us as refugees. And so, yeah, we left because there was an imminent fear of physical harm to us. And there were hundreds of people that got killed in these pogroms in the late 80s 
strictly on their ethnic identity as being Armenians in Baku. Mm. Mm. So what did your dad do for a living? My dad was a chef and worked in kind of like the service restaurant industry type. So we he moved from being a waiter to being a, a chef, cook. And then he kind of had his side hustles on the side. Uh, he would go to Moscow and get goods and bring them back to Baku. And he always would have little things. And so we grew up with kind of technology that everybody else didn't have. I remember being a kid and having a VCR because my dad was able to finesse one from Japan. And so he was very entrepreneurial in that sense. So when you came to America, did, well, first of all, you were just a child when you came. Yeah, I was six. You you were six. Okay. When did you become a Christian and how did you become a Christian here in America? So my dad comes, my mom comes, and unfortunately they had a lot of marital issues back in Baku. Um, They had split up. There was times where I wouldn't see my dad for a while because he was practically away working in Moscow. And when they came out, my mom and my dad had this agreement that like, okay, this is a fresh start for us. We're going to just clean slate. We're going to work on our marriage. I didn't know that they both had committed infidelity back in the Soviet Union, right? My dad mm-hmm. was in Moscow. My mom was in Baku. The, 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 the tension probably of their marriage was hard. And my dad was hanging out one day and I remember coming across these um these letters with these these lipstick kissy mark on them and I discovered these and in my innocence I was like oh this is so sweet my mom is writing these little kissy letters to my dad how sweet so I bring them to my dad who uh, loses it and come to find out they weren't to my dad they were actually to my mom's boyfriend back in Baku that led to my dad leaving marriage falling apart that was the straw that broke the camel's back well, hold the thought. We're going to come right back after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. Much more with Ruzlan when we come back. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. There's also an app you can get, two words in the app store, crossexamined. Today, we're talking to Ruslan KD. Look for him on YouTube, R-U-S-L-A-N, and then KD. Uh, Ruslan, just before the break, you were talking about uh, the situation uh, in Azerbaijan, when you were there between your mom and your dad, pick it up right where you left off. Yeah. So at this point, we come to America. It's a clean slate for them to kind of work on their marriage, if you will. And I end up discovering these letters with kissy marks on them. And I am so enamored. I think they're sweet. They're from my dad. How awesome. And then I bring them to my dad, who discovers that they're not to him at all. They were to my mom's boyfriend back in Baku. That's who the letter's for. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Of course, I didn't discover this until as an adult where I confronted my dad. Like, why did you leave, right? And he, he told me this story. You don't remember this. And then like the memories came back. And I was like, oh, I, I absolutely remembered it. And so he leaves. This is about a few months into us being in America. Uh, he brought his girlfriend who then became his wife from Moscow to America. So he starts a new family. Uh, my mom goes down this dark spiral of alcoholism and just being an abusive relationship with just very toxic men. And I, I'm going to this Armenian Orthodox church. Again, that was the kind of the cultural hub. I get christened. I become an altar boy. And in these, this community, there was 
kids my age, six, seven, eight. And then there was older kids that were like teenagers, 13, 14, 15. And there was a group of teenagers, also refugee kids from the community that were altar boys with me. And long story short, they ended up sexually assaulting me um, repeatedly numerous times through uh, showing me these videos, these graphic adult videos. And uh, and that really, really, really did a number on me um, because what happened is when this stuff finally came out, it was kind of spun to make me look like the aggressor in the situation. I was the youngest one. I was the smallest one. And the way the church responded to it or rather didn't really respond or do anything to it created this very strong vitriol against church and against God and against religion. At the same time, my dad was remarrying his um, his girlfriend at the time. And my mom felt like the church was wrong in remarrying them because from my mom's perspective, they technically didn't get divorced, right? And so my dad's perspective is, well, we were separated and I don't know. They may or may have not gotten divorced back in Baku. My mom was like, well, your dad's a polygamist and I can't believe the church would allow this. So then, so it was like the te- her anger at the church, my anger at the church. And so by the time I'm 10 years old, fourth, fifth grade, I'm a full-blown atheist. I don't believe in God. If there is a God, he, he hates me because why would he allow all this terrible stuff to happen to me? Why would he allow me to be sexually assaulted? Why would he allow my dad to leave? Why would he allow all these things to happen? And uh, I end up going down this path of attempting to be a gang member of selling weed, of smoking weed, uh, all, all culminating to me getting arrested at the age of 11. And um, my mom was kind of shocked. But at the time, she was a single mom. She's working nights. So she doesn't know all the all the mischief I'm getting into as a kid. And it was a really dark time for me as a kid. So this is all fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I, I'm breaking into houses. I'm, I broke into my school multiple times and just stealing things. And it, it, it culminated to my mom kind of seeing the direction I was headed. And thankfully, we moved from San Diego, the city of San Diego. We were in the City Heights, Normal Heights area. And we got relocated to North County, San Diego, which is where I'm at till this day, Vista, California. You've been here, Frank. Uh, It's a bit more uh, suburban, a bit more rural. Uh, It's still the city, but it's not the city where I was at. And that kind of gave me a a fresh start. I started focusing on sports, playing basketball. That was plan A, by the way. I was going to be an NBA player. And then I remembered I was Armenian and five foot ten. And uh, we've (laughs) we've never had an NBA player. So in the path of sports. Now I wasn't smoking weed. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't selling drugs. I wasn't getting in any trouble. I wasn't doing any illegal things. Basketball was my outlet. Music, I, I always had a desire for that. And I ended up winning a talent show down the street here uh, in Bringle Terrace Park. I won that talent show and I met a girl at the talent show. And this is the end of my freshman year of high school. And in order to hang out with her on the weekends during the summertime, the only way I could see her was if I went to church with her and her family. And so this is gosh, this is at the peak of the kind of the seeker friendly movement in the late nineties. And I ended up going to church with her for, for years and hearing the gospel, hearing aspects of the gospel that really resonated with me. And it was about a two year tug of war with God. I'm talking, I needed to, to d- dig deep into every single question. At the same time, me and her break up. I started dating a Jehovah's witness girl. I got friends that are Muslims. I got friends that are Mormons. And I am just dissecting all of the different faith views and traditions. At this point I'm a theist. I'm not I'm not I'm not an atheist anymore. I'm a theist because I'm obviously going to church, but I I couldn't figure out if Jesus was God almighty or if he was just the son of God. And that's what was kind of the, the hiccup for me in terms of uh, the Jehovah's Witness girl and some of the stuff they were teaching. And so I was working at Pizza Hut at the time 
And oddly enough, my manager was a Christian. Our lead delivery driver was a Christian. And they were the ones that kind of really shared the gospel with me. And then they put uh, the new evidence that demands a verdict in my hand. This is my sophomore year. And that that is probably what sealed the deal for me. Second semester of my sophomore year, I'm working at Pizza Hut. I just turned 16. And that, that sealed a deal for me. And at that, and then I, I go in the cage stage, which is uh, put him in a cage, keep him away from everybody. Because then I told the Jehovah's Witness girl she's in a cult and that she's going <laughs> to hell. And that, you know, and, and I became that Christian kind of the second half of my of my sophomore year, which wasn't good. Uh, I wasn't very gracious or compassionate, but I knew, okay, Jesus is God. This is the most important thing. And then it took about another year of dating the other girl and being sexually immoral and having one foot in and one foot out and finally surrendering my life to Jesus the end of my junior year of high school, fully surrendering. I'm going to get into a small group. I'm going to make a, uh, a effort to be a part of a local church. So that was like a two and a half year process for me of really wrestling with God. I, w- I wish it was a more like, I remember I put my hand up at this moment. There wasn't really a moment like that for me. I made a public declaration of faith at uh, a Miles McPherson crusade here in San Diego. Uh, the summer of 2002 is July 4th, 2002. But at that point I had already surrendered my life privately. It was just, there was a public declaration of faith and uh, subsequently jumped into small groups and leading groups and ministry and uh, kind of following the same format that I do on YouTube now, tying in relevant events that people care about, relevant topics that people care about back into the scriptures. And that was, yeah, that was over 20 years ago now. You know, I came to faith by reading Evidence Demands a Verdict 2, the first edition. Mm. And so it's interesting that uh, that helped you realize that Jesus was God. I was always a theist. I knew there had to be a a first cause. I just didn't know who Jesus was. And then when I got that book, I went, wow, this is really true. Now you've had Sean McDowell on your show recently, right. uh, who helped update it. I helped update one of the in-between editions with Norman Geisler a number of years ago. And now the newest edition probably came out four or five years ago. It still is a great book. It just has so much in it. It's more of a reference book than yes. really a, a read from, you know, cover to cover it's more of a reference book but it's still great work now you got into the music scene uh, people who see your youtube channel might not know that you really were hip hop ar- a hip hop artist first a rapper first how did all that happen well growing up in san diego this is the 90s so this is right in between Tribe Call Quest, um, Leaders of the New School, LL Cool J, and the gangster rap era was coming in, right? So I was, mm-hmm. I was. That's when I got into hip hop. So initially, I, I'm into the music. Like the music was just cool. Like it was like, wow, this is cool. I was always fascinated with American culture. So back in Amer- back in Azerbaijan, all we had was Michael Jackson. I come to America, and 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 I'm seeing the the the, the break dancing. I'm seeing the DJing. I'm, I'm I'm seeing the elements of hip hop in real time. And so I I as a kid, just kind of started freestyling. And and when I unfortunately broke into my elementary school, I stole a karaoke machine to make demo tapes of different songs. And <laughs> that was the initial spark of it was just kind of as a, as an elementary school kid, just kind of messing around. What happened was when I started playing basketball, I would be the one kid freestyling in on the basketball team. And the guys would be like, Hey, this is actually pretty good for those folks that don't know what freestyling is. It's just like someone could be beat, beatboxing, you throw on an instrumental and you're just coming off the cuff with whatever's coming to your mind, putting words together. And it, it, it's tapping into flow state. It's tapping into that. Like, do you know enough vocabulary? And do you have no, have enough cadence and rhythm to come up with a freestyle? So I did that for a while. And the basketball players were like, Hey, like you're, you're pretty good at this. They're probably telling me you're probably not very good at basketball. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I, I did that and then 
high school, I get cut from my junior varsity basketball team, sophomore year. And I said, okay, my, my mom, thankfully, had got me a computer at that time. I, I started recording myself. And over time, I just slowly built it up to the point where in 2015, I quit my job and I pursued being an independent rapper from about 2015 to 2020, full-time, providing for me and my family in Southern California. My wife uh, was a stay-at-home mom. And that was a really interesting season, to say the least. But yeah, we ran a little boutique label called King's Dream Entertainment. I was in a collective called The Dream Junkies. We were on the Carson Daly show, traveled the country, played all over uh, college, primarily secular colleges, because we were kind of too edgy of a Christian group to play many churches. We played some churches and some Christian conferences, but it was a lot of secular colleges that would bring us in. And that's how I made a livelihood for myself for, for quite a bit of time. Um, and then as the pandemic happened, I couldn't do any more shows. Uh, there wasn't really a, a lot of money coming in from the music side because everything shut down. And so I was like, man, I was already dabbling with YouTube. I was already podcasting. I was doing vlogs, just trying to experiment. Had maybe 15,000 subscribers at the beginning of 2020. And I just pivoted. I said, okay, I'm home. I'm going to go lean into this format on YouTube, talking about my faith, tying in different events that people care about. And by the end of 2020, I was at about 60,000 subscribers. I brought, I brought on Zach Sparazzo, who you've met. Zach's our mm -hmm. COO now. And yeah, we just, thank, thankfully, by the grace of God, continued to scale. Uh, and so now now we have, uh, including myself, we have four full-time people. My wife works with us. We have a couple of remote editors. And yeah, the music was, was, a, was an amazing season. I still make music. I still release music. Um, but I don't like to travel very much. And that requires a lot of travel and doing shows and tours and that sort of stuff. But yeah, that's how I got my start in music is really just freestyling and God saving me and me being like, okay, this is something I'm pretty good at. Maybe God can use this for his glory. And I, and I think he has. Well, now you're over 500,000 subscribers in just a few years. What do you think the secret sauce is, Ruslan? Why are, what do people who watch your show say they like about it? Remember, the I proverb think, says we don't want to we don't want to gloat or say, you know, I'm great because of, you know, what I'm doing. But when other people say, hey, this is really good. What do they what do they say that's really good about your show? I think there is a desire for people today to be a bit more themselves on camera. So the more you can really make the listener feel like you're just talking to them, the uh -huh. way me and you are having this conversation, if, 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 if you can capture that from a content standpoint, I think that's, that's a big one is I've always been very conversational and it doesn't come off scripted and mm -hmm. forced. So I think foundationally that I think tying that, tying that into something that you're an actual expert on. And then I think, uh, being in a place where there's a desire for the type of content you're making. So people genuinely were looking for this sort of content. I had experiment experience with it and I could be myself on camera. We're also going to see from Ruslan who his favorite interviews are and what he's learned from these great folks as he's interviewed. So you don't want to miss the remainder of our program. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Back in two. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Frank Turek with you. Want to mention I'll be in British Columbia this weekend up in Chilliwack, Canada. Uh, if you want to be a part of that, go to our website. Also, down in Sarasota, Florida, coming up the 4th to the 6th of March, my friend Chip Bennett at Grace Community Church is running Apologetics Con. I'll be there with Elisa Childers, Vocab Malone, John McRae, and several others. Go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on events, you'll see the calendar. Then uh, the 9th of 
of March. I'll be at the Unshaken Conference. Myself, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane. I'll be speaking at Metro City Church also the following day at the services. And then keep an eye out. We're coming down to uh, Louisiana for Southeastern Louisiana University on the 25th of March. Uh, we will also be at University of Buffalo on April 3rd. And then Boise State on April 8th out there in Idaho. A lot more on the calendar. I can't mention it all here. Check all that out. And also, don't forget, the brand new uh, CIA in Charlotte will be happening this uh, this August. You got to go to the cross-examine website look at events look for cia you have to apply it's the cross-examine instructor academy myself greg kokel alisa childers natasha crane alan parr several others will be your instructors so if you want to be a part of that check it out and if you can't make it to charlotte we are teaching the cia online course that starts next month so if you want to learn how to present this material in a more effective way and answer questions, join CIA online. Very limited number of people in that class. you got to sign up soon. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. All right, talking to my friend Ruslan. Ruslan KD, ladies and gentlemen, on YouTube. Great channel. Lots of wonderful content on current issues, on apologetic issues, on biblical theology. It's all there. In fact, we're going to get into some of that right now with Ruslan. You, you, you've had some great guests, and outside of me, um, <laughs> I'm probably your favorite guest of all time, Ruslan, I can imagine. Um, who are some of your favorite guests that you've had on? Oh, gosh. My conversation with Greg Laurie came at a time where there was a, a much needed shift, I would say, in some of my content. For folks who aren't familiar with Christian YouTube, a lot of the content can very easily drift into dunking on the out group. And so depending on which in group you're in, dunking on the out group is just easy. So in my niche, as, as I was coming up, it was a lot of the, hey, this celebrity pastor said this crazy thing. Ha ha ha. This right, is insane, yeah. right? Uh, and I was doing some sort of that concept, which I think some of that is necessary. I think there is a time and a, and a place to call out false teaching. Sure. But sometimes that mentality can create a cynicism and create mm -hmm. a very broad stroke of assuming that every celebrity pastor, all pa all mega church pastors, and Pastor Greg Laurie uh, reached out and was so gracious. And we ended up sitting down and doing several interviews together. And seeing him up close and personal and becoming friends with him and, and Jonathan was so fun and so refreshing. And so I think the Pastor Greg Glory interviews were great. We talked a lot about Jesus Revolution. We talked a lot about the Jesus movement, Jesus hippie movement. We talked about all, all sorts of different things. And, and that was great. But I think the time off camera with him was really great where mm -hmm. I remember one day we were hanging out and he went, we hadn't had our bathroom built in the studio yet. He was actually our first guest in this new studio and he was hanging out and he went to use the bathroom inside the house. My kids were sitting down doing homeschool and he stops and sits down with them for about 15, 20 minutes and draws every single one of them cartoons and <laughs> just, just, just pours into the, and it was the sweetest thing. I actually got video of it and I was like, wow. And so that to me, Seeing him up close and personal started started to shift my perspective on 
mega churches aren't all bad. All pastors that are that are desiring to reach as many people as possible aren't all bad. Celebrity pastors aren't all bad. And 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 that created a shift in my content where I don't really do a ton of call out videos now. I don't think they're necessarily the I, again. There are channels who do that, and there's a time and a place for that. But I I have leaned into what I call net positive content. So when someone says something, instead of just trying to come down and hammer on how stupid they are, I try to find the good in what they say and then gently redirect and correct the the errors that they're maybe communicating. And it's just. I, I feel more wholesome making that sort of content. And it was Pastor Greg Glory, and then I ended up having Pastor Chris Brown, who pastors North Coast Church here in Vista, probably the biggest church in North County. Same same exact demeanor, just gentle, just good. And, and then I started traveling, and I discovered that most celebrity pastors or megachurch pastors are a lot like Chris Brown and Greg Glory, and not like some of the names out there that are kind of seem to be enamored with their own ego and their own status mm. that most pastors are here doing a good job regardless on the size of their church or regardless on how you think they are they're 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 genuinely trying to serve people so that was i would say that conversation with greg glory sparked all that off for me and i'm still friends with them and it's weird to wake up from a text message from greg glory telling me how great a video was like but it's it's incredible Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, these guys that uh, really are doing great work out there, I think of Jack Hibbs and Skip Heitzig and Gary Hambrick and many others, they're really just down to earth guys. They're very humble. Like myself, you know, my new book is 10 Steps to Humility and How I Made It in Seven. I don't know if you know that, <laughs> which is, it's really humbled me uh, because I've actually made it in six for as long. Wow. So uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's um, you know, you, a lot of your videos or some of your most popular videos, again, we're talking to Ruslan KD. If you're just tuning in, uh, check him out on YouTube, Ruslan, as, uh, sorry, R-U-S-L-A-N and then KD. Um, you have a lot uh, of Joe Rogan. Uh, you listen to Rogan and Rogan is a very interesting interviewer. He normally has the, he's normally in the top one or two podcasts in the world, Um why do you think Rogan is so popular? What the podcast? What what is it that makes him so interesting to people? I think he is willing to talk about things that most people aren't willing to talk about. Mm -hmm. He's willing to lean into conversations that are politically incorrect. I think his political views are fairly heterodox. He's not doesn't fit all the way in a conservative bubble, definitely doesn't fit in the liberal bubble. And I also think that there's a degree of he's been at it for so long that there's some early adoption that happened for him, you know, 12, 15 years ago. I think he's been doing this fairly consistently. And so I think creating the right guests, the right temperament, the right degree of just conversation and not being able to fit in a box has created a huge, huge audience for him. And speaking to a, a, a vast amount of topics, he'll talk about everything from fitness to politics to all sorts of different things. And so I think that's why he's resonated with people. Mm. I think lately it's been some of the being able to take the contrarian position on certain things that the institutions are perhaps not with, whether it's DEI and those sorts of things. And I think that I think that kind of car has carved out a very interesting place for him that a lot of people tend to flock to and check out. Yeah. And the other interesting thing, it's such a long form uh, uh, podcast, you know, it's oh, yeah. not your standard 40 minutes or whatever. It's like two or three hours yep. and uh, people really dive into it. So, and Rogan, as you've pointed out, one of your more recent videos has Rogan saying when he's interviewing Aaron Rodgers, man, we really need Jesus. And he, he mm -hmm. wasn't, he wasn't, as you pointed out, he wasn't 
really joking about it. He's saying, yeah, we we need to get back to reality here in America and around the world. And uh, so you have a video on that. You have a video on him reading the book of Revelation you know? <laughs> <laughs> and saying, wow, Joe Rogan. Maybe that is maybe you're right. That that's one of the appeals because he doesn't fit in any one box. And, you know, honestly, people who listen to this show are probably Christians and they're probably interested in apologetics and they're probably interested in theology and that kind of thing. And I don't have enough faith to be an atheist might not appeal to somebody who um is a non-believer but joe rogan can appeal to everybody right because you you never really know which angle he's going to come at an issue from yeah and i think he tries to be objective I, he isn't always mm-hmm. objective but i think he genuinely right. tries and i think that there seems to be a shift happening in the zeitgeist with regards to a jordan peterson a joe rogan mm-hmm. of seeing Perhaps not the supernatural aspects of faith, but definitely seeing the practical utility of Christian faith and, and how intrinsic it is to the West, to America, and not being afraid to address that, even though perhaps personally they haven't had an encounter with God. They're seeing the practical side of it, which I think is interesting. I think Justin, uh, who wrote a book recently, he used to be the host of Unbelievable, has expressed some Justin of these- Justin Brierley, he'll be on yeah. next week. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. He's going to be on this podcast next week. Yeah. Yeah. So he's expressed some of this uh, mm-hmm. in terms of his book. And so I think that that shift is, caught, is happening in real time. I also think Rogan moved from LA and anyone that's ever kind of been connected to any communities in LA, it's, man- Holly weird is a thing. It's weird. There's, there's a mm-hmm. lot of weird things that are happening there. And I think him probably landing in Austin um, is beneficial. And there's probably some people behind the scenes consistently leaning into these conversations with him. I know we have some mutual friends uh, that have brought up faith on his podcast before. My buddy Zuby's been on his podcast quite a few times and, and asked him about God and these sorts of things. And so I think there's things that are happening in real time. And I'm not saying that this is going to lead to some massive revival or this is going to change America, but I do find it interesting that some of the most influential figureheads in media today, uh, a Jordan Peterson, a Joe Rogan, are becoming more and more outspoken that at the very least they sound like they're theists. Jordan Peterson sounds way further along in his journey. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's mm. a good thing because someone may be interested in them and then trickle into a channel like mine and then maybe trickle into a channel like yours and then hopefully trickle into a good local church, get discipled, get equipped, and then go be on mission for Jesus in the world. So that's how I, that's how I see it. I see it in that sense. And I think that's that's a massive net positive. Yeah, with the rise of evil, in other words, evil being more and more prevalent, we see it all around us. I think some people are going, wow, um, maybe there is a God because things really appear to be going badly. And they may think just from a pragmatic standpoint, we need somebody to come save us. I mean, that's, mm. that's basically what Joe Rogan was saying. And then from a philosophical standpoint, people are going, well, if there's evil, there has to be good. And if there's good, there has to be God. That's right. And so here's a, here's a good ripple effect, ladies and gentlemen, is that when evil really raises its ugly head, uh, a lot of times it might lead to good down the road because people are shaken from their sort of apathy uh, and in fact, when we come back from the break, I want to ask you about this, Ruslan. Uh, you just, you're, one of your more recent videos this week has to do with uh, biblical worldview of what apparently Christians and even Jews and maybe even Muslims, but more Christians are identifying themselves as 
basically deists. What do we make of that? That they're really not in it for the biblical God, but there's just somebody up there that I can call on whenever I need him, but it's really all about me and what I want out of life. And we're going to cover that right after the break with Ruslan KD. Check out his YouTube channel, R-U-S-L-A-N. And then KD, lots of great stuff up there. One more segment with Ruslan. When we come back, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know more about apologetics, about philosophy, and about theology in a formal way, to get a formal degree, there's no better place to go than Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu forward slash Frank. You can get a discount. That's where I went. That's where Elisa Childers is going. Melissa Doherty's going there. Several others. Check out SES, Southern Evangelical Seminary, EDU. It's all online. You don't need to move. When I went there 30 years ago, I moved because there was no internet at the time. But you can get a great education from your own living room or bedroom. Just go to ses.edu forward slash Frank. You can learn a lot more. We're talking to Ruslan KD. Great YouTube channel. A lot of fresh content up there every week. You want to check it out. And Ruslan, before the break... This latest video you've got on your YouTube channel, you've got uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, Bishop Barron, and uh, also another Catholic priest. I'm trying to think of his name, Schmitz, uh, the guy that does yeah, Mike uh, Mike Schmitz, I think, or Mike Fritz. Mike Schmitz. Yeah, he he's got a very popular uh, podcast going through the Bible as well. And uh, you guys were discussing something that the researcher Christian Smith discovered many years ago that he would describe most Christians in America, regardless of their denomination, as believing in what he called moral therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in your estimation, first of all, what does that mean and does it shock you? It, it doesn't shock me at all. It, it, it means that whether someone's a Christian, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, mm -hmm. and they identify as that, or they're an agnostic, or they're Jewish, that their worldview is more or less the same. The God is, he's hes not theist, he's not personal, he's not engaged, he's more distant, he's a deist God, that they are um, viewing God more as a therapist and uh, as almost like a genie that you call on when something's going bad, and that their worldviews are indistinguishable from each other, and that it's not a biblical worldview. And when you consider how many people identify as Christian yet how the, I don't know, something like the divorce rates versus professing, quote unquote, professing Christians, not practicing Christians, but the professing Christians, divorce rates from the regular population don't seem to be much different, right? The depression rates don't seem to be much different. And I think when you peel away is that there's a lot of what we would call cultural Christianity, we would call churchianity that isn't reflective or indicative of an actual Christian biblical worldview. And in my opinion, this is why so many people are stuck in addiction. This is why so many people are struggling. This is why there's so much compartmentalization with, hey, I, I claim to believe the Bible, but uh, yeah, it's okay if women murder babies. I, I claim to believe in the mm -hmm. Bible, but yeah, it's okay if we just redefine what gender is and redefine. And I think that's that's where we are is, is a very interesting place that people are just confused. And it perhaps there's a correlation with also the rise of the new atheism here with people wanting to make 
America less and less Christian and more and more secular. And now we're in this really fascinating place where the moralistic therapeutic deists don't really speak up and say anything because they don't really know what they believe. And the new atheists have kind of ran all of the institutions. And now we're in this really weird place where I don't think anyone's happy with the outcome of all this stuff. That's right. Yeah. People who are not necessarily religious in the traditional sense, people like Joe Rogan and and Douglas Murray and even um, even Dave Rubin and others are going, wow, this is getting crazy. What what is going on? Bill Maher, of all people, right? Mm-hmm. You go, Bill Maher is one of the most articulate spokesperson against the juvenile trans movement. When I say juvenile, trying to transition kids, he's mm-hmm. going, this is crazy. And he's an atheist. I mean, they're realizing how crazy this is. And they're the ones speaking up. Tragically, few pastors are speaking up. And that's a problem. That's why your YouTube channel and others are so important because you will talk about these issues. And by the way, you do it in kind of a coy way. You don't talk about LGBTQ. You talk about... LGTV, because I have a lot of <laughs> LGTVs <laughs> in my studio. And so, you know, we're fans of, of LGTVs and the LGTV community. And that's our way of being... Uh, not having our channel flagged uh, in the <laughs> right. algorithm is we we kind of use code words. Our audience <laughs> knows what it is and understands it. And it's kind of funny, you know, but yeah, so we, we, we use coded language to make sure that uh, we're not kind of setting off those bells to get ourselves uh, blacklisted in the algorithm on YouTube. LGTV. Whenever you're hearing Ruslan say LGTV, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> he's talking about the alpha, the alphabet community. So now it's interesting, too, that Barna has done some research on this and figured out that only 40 percent of pastors have a biblical worldview. I saw that. And, and about four or five percent of people in the pews have a biblical worldview. They mm-hmm. are basically moral therapeutic deists. They just call God, as you just pointed out, like he's a genie. Whenever I need him, I'll call him. But other than that, stay out of my life. He's not going to direct what I'm going to think or do or who I'm going to vote for or any of that. It's just. When I need them, I'll call them. Uh, so what do you think the greatest problem right now is that Christians are facing? I think the greatest problem right now is that we don't understand that our faith has historically been a practice and not mm-hmm. just a theological head knowledge position. And I think that is tragic because if you look throughout church history, if you look uh, throughout church fathers, you look in the scriptures themselves, faith is a practice. Faith without works is dead. And I, what I'm not speaking about a, about a salvation, right? Because then mm-hmm. the free grace sticklers will get real angry and say, you're saying works. I'm not saying works is what saves you. I'm saying right. works is something Christians should do. Works is something that we should practice. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, right? Uh, you've been saved by grace through faith. Uh, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God predestined in advance. So there are works, good works for us to do on this side of eternity. And I think that when we just make faith compartmentalized to informational knowledge, it's just information. It's just, I, I yep, I believe Jesus died. I believe Jesus rose. I, I, I believe the Bible, even though I don't know what the Bible says or I've never read the Bible, I believe it. That doesn't really mean anything, right? But when, when the faith then is aligned to a practical implementation in a daily lifestyle. You you mentioned, right, how we navigate our homes, how we navigate. You said 4% of people in the pews have a biblical worldview. 
three or four percent of people in the pews probably give to their local churches. They probably do any charity. They probably read their Bibles regularly. And I think that is the biggest threat is we've compartmentalized the faith to just an informational infographics video and not a practice, a day-to-day practice that that God's ways are good, that God's wisdom is good, and that it, it, it encompasses all aspects of our life. Mm. And that is not just for our benefit, but it's also for the benefit of others, that when we are being the hands and feet of Jesus, because we're actually living it out, that we get to be a blessing to to our neighbor. We get to do good in this world. We get to be God's kingdom on this side of eternity. And I think that's the biggest breakdown that I'm seeing is that there's a lot of people that they'll check off the box. And, and we're seeing this less and less with Gen Z, by the way. Gen Z is not wanting to check off the box. Gen Z is over it. They're, they're, they'd rather just tell you, with, oh, yeah, well, I'm not religious, right? Uh, where I think that's a, that, that believe it or not, I think that could be a good thing because now we can get to the crux of who's really about this Jesus thing? Who's really about living out God's ways on this side of eternity and that the bodily resurrection, if true, has radical implications for every area of my life. It has implications for how I lead my home, how I treat my wife, how I handle my finances, how I take care of my body. All of these things matter to God. And unfortunately, we've compartmentalized them. And as the world is hurting, we're going to see even more disparity. People talk about wealth inequality. We're going to see spiritual health inequality. We're going to see all sorts of inequality because People who are actually practicing these things are going to be way different in the decades to come. And I I, want to see more people practicing the faith because I think it's important. It's supremely important. Our job here is to know God and to make him known. And that requires us not to just talk a good game, but to actually get engaged with people to make them disciples. In fact, you're an example of that, Ruslan, because you didn't just hear the gospel once and said, that's it. That's for me. That's true. You went through a process. You said yeah. several years before you became a Christian. Being exposed to the truth just once usually is not enough. It takes a while for somebody to actually change their worldview and then actually live according to that change. Hey, I know yeah. that there's there's people listening right now that want some advice from you because I know there's a lot of people listening who are apologists, they're aspiring apologists, they, they want to make a difference on YouTube or Instagram. You know, with about a minute to go, can you kind of give them your best advice on how to, you know, how to how to how to make a difference online for people? I think th- we have to consider the audience, and I think sometimes mm-hmm. the smartest guys I know, the most educated guys I know, don't always spend the most amount of time considering what do people care about, what are they talking about, and what are they mm-hmm. interested in. So I think if we slow down and say, okay, there's so many guys out here that are experts, they're educated way smarter than I am, have way more degrees than I do. And if those guys, those are the people I want to see platform, by the way, those are the people I'm excited to bring onto my podcast and share them with my audience is if those people can tap into what's happening in culture and then speak to those things from a more educated, more uh, expert level, I think Mm -hmm. we could see more and more people in the space, whether it's Christian, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever platform, but we have to consider what the audience wants and, and and consider what the needs of the audience are. And I don't mean just like, what do you think their needs are? No, I'm saying, what are they following? Who are they listening to? And how can you lean into that and perhaps offer some correction, perhaps affirm some of the things they're getting right, and then infuse 
the actual truth and the actual truth that you've been trained in. And that would be my heart for a lot of the folks out here because I think there's so many good voices that I'm seeing sprout up, but there's not enough people that actually care about where people are at and what are they interested in and how they can lean in and offer their expertise into that. Go to Ruslan KD, ladies and gentlemen, Ruslan KD, R-U-S-L-A-N, and then KD on YouTube. Where else can people get a hold of you? Suppose they want you to come speak, Ruslan. How do they do that? Yeah, if they if they go to bookruslan.com, they can uh, just book me right there. There's uh, okay. a little fill out contact form, fairly straightforward. And so, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, brother. Keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Frank. That's Ruslan, ladies and gentlemen. Ruslan KD. Go to his YouTube channel or go to bookruslan.com and learn a lot more. And we'll have Justin Brierley on the show next week. A very surprising development in the world of Christianity and atheism. So you don't want to miss that. See you here then. God bless.